Hello, and welcome to another short box from Warhammer 40K's Grim History from the Beyond. I'm Zekthar, and this week we'll be talking about the light before the darkness of the Horus Heresy. That's right, we'll be discussing the Great Crusade. And this week we're going to talk about one of the last battles of Horus Salupko and the Emperor of Mankind as they fought side by side, known as the Battle of Goro. Now, the Battle of Goro is unique on a couple of fronts. One, we just don't have a whole lot of stories about Horus and the Emperor fighting side by side against a common enemy. Normally, it's the other way around, as their forces fight against each other, until the dramatic conclusion on Horus's ship, the Vengeful Spirit, where the two square off to determine the fate of the galaxy. And two, this portrays Horus in a completely different light than we see him in the Horus Heresy. This takes place before such dark times of the universe, and it gives good countenance of why the Emperor would leave Horus Lupercal, first among all, as War Master. While this is such a small glimmer into the history of the Imperium, I would be remiss if I didn't tell you that most of what I have found has come from the famed Imperial Remembrancer, Graham McNeil, which he documented in a particle script, along with other writers such as Dan Abnett. Horus Lupercal, Before the Fall, dated in 792.m36. His chapter of note was called The Wolf of Ash and Fire. But I digress. On with the chronicling. This story takes place before the Great Ulanor Campaign, and just like the greatest peak of the Emperor's Crusade, it has to do with the worst enemy of the Imperium at the time, the Orcs. The Luna Wolves find themselves in dire circumstances of the scrap world known as Goro, in the space of Talon Reach. Our story starts with Horus's most trusted four lieutenants, known as the Mornival, observing the void battle on the command deck of the Vengeful Spirit. No minor men of history, these Mornival, but mighty heroes known for all time, the smallest being Horus Aximand, stoic and sour of nature. Thanks to his similar looks and same name as the Primarch, his nickname was always Little Horus. Always dour, when he spoke, the wise listened, for his words were always carefully calculated and carried much weight. Unlike his comrade, Torek Torgadon, who was slightly larger, but evermore the jokester. When Torek spoke, most listened, mainly for entertainment's sake. Yet mark my words, when Torek became serious, his words carried wisdom that few disregarded. Then you had the largest of the Mournival, captain of the Lupercal's famous Justarians. Those of the first chapter, famous for their savageness in battle. Indeed, they were much like their commander, Ezekiel Abaddon, in nature. Impatient and direct, Ezekiel always waged a war within himself, the raging anger waiting to be unleashed, and the tactical soundness that only the Mournival and their Primarch knew. The last of these mighty Astartes was who McNeil documented the Battle of Goro through, other than the Primarch himself. Sejunus Hestor was the commander of the fourth chapter of the Luna Wolves, loved by all because of his righteous vigor of humanity. It is only befitting that he is the scribe, so to speak, of our story. Yet, from where they sit, the battle is not going well. You see, the Talon system is under the rule of the Orcs, yet their war boss and his command is at the center of the Talon system, which was the scrap world of Goro. Horus, ever the fan of his favorite tactic known as the Spear Tip, thrusted his armada deep into Orc territory, planning on striking Goro, killing the war boss, and thus ending the campaign. For those of you listening, you might think this is a very reminiscent of the Ulanor campaign. And you'd be correct. Same tactics, different story. I believe the saying goes, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Yet as the Mournival join their leader on the observation deck, they comment things have gone awry, and they think that Horus has bitten off more than he can chew. 
Now, before I continue, I must mention again, this is not the Horus that has been corrupted by chaos, the dark creature that mothers scare their children with to keep them in bed. This is Horus pre-chaos, and he is a different animal. Now, if you wish to go more in-depth anyways to Horus's character, may I suggest the chronicler Dan Abnett, and he gives a far better example of, of Horus's character in his book named Horus Rising. And it's about 400 pages, and he does an excellent job with it. Unfortunately, I only have a few paragraphs to do so. But if you want to read more about the intricacies of Horus's character before the heresy, I do suggest the book Horus Rising. It is very good. But to put it in so few words, Horus was the terror to his enemies, a mighty war that even gave the angel sanguineous pause. He was a brilliant tactician, far better than his brother Lionel Johnson in the matters of war. His brilliance and diplomacy was second only to the Emperor. Even Rabute Gilliman looked to Horus for advice when it came to the game of empire. Yet the true greatness of Horus was with his troops. Never was Horus the high and mighty type. He treated his troops as his children, and the Mournval, his most trusted sons. Always one to teach, and always one to listen to counsel. He was the most loved by his men, far more than any other Primarch. This is the Primarch that leads the crusade against Goro. Mighty Horus, second to none other than the emperor himself. Yet to the Mornival, it seems that he might have blundered. Being outmatched by the untold multitude of orc warships, the Mornival suggests a different tactic. With a sly smile, Horus asks for advice for victory. None can give such advice, other than Torek, who notices that behind the orc fleet was a wide expanse. Torek made mention of his thoughts, saying, Oh, what, I wouldn't give for another fleet. Then we'd have them caught between two flanks. No use wishing for what we don't have, was Horus said sourly. Horus grinned, and Sejunus figured he knew something that they didn't. Not unusual. Yet Horus was teaching his sons, and Sejunus wouldn't stop that. He had faith in his father, and one of the things he loved most was his teachings. Sejunus waited for Horus's response. What do you think, Sejunus? Horus said, trying to keep the glee from his voice. Hastur looked at the map, trying to decipher his leader's thoughts, yet he couldn't see it. With a growl, Hastur said, Hmm, Tarek's right. We had another fleet element in the northern aspect. Our current strategy would be sound. We would be able to crush the enemy with an anvil and hammer, the second fleet being the hammer, ours being the anvil. The rest of the Mournful nodded with the thought, but groaned because they had no such fleet. Tarek even spoke out jokingly, saying, Any chance you could conjure one of those fleets? <laughs> Horus grinned. Mistress Singh, what's the ETA? Confused, the Mournival glanced over at the warp mistress. Eminent, Primarch Horus, but you already knew that. Horus barked a good-humored laugh and slapped Torica on the back, saying, <laughs> You are quite right, Mistress Singh. Please pardon me for a little theater. You see, we are about to see something awesome. Glancing at Sejonus, who stood perplexed, Horus said in a bold voice to all who stood on the command deck, Ladies and gentlemen, I give you the Emperor. Space parted and amber light spewed from the blackness of space. A mighty ship blasted into the northern particles of Goro. As the light faded, what remained was just as bold, a colossus of gold and steel. Its point was a massive golden eagle, its talons clawing, eagerly at empty space. It was indeed a starship, but nothing like the Mournival had seen. It was massive glorious, and mighty. Gazing upon the vessel, St. Junus knew it could be one thing, and one thing only. The Imperator Sumanon, the Emperor's battleship. Yet the Emperor did not appear alone. He brought his whole armada, 
becoming the hammer to Horus's anvil. The Emperor smashed into the backside of the orc warships, taking them completely by surprise. When they gave chase, Horus's vessels closed and eager for the kill. As opposed to most doctrines of combat, when one talks about the anvil and hammer, the enemy is stagnant against the anvil, trying to smash it. That's when the hammer force hammers home. This is the original concept, yet Horus was not without teeth. As the enemy orc fleet thinned, trying to defeat the hammer of the emperor, Horus had his ship swoop in behind them, making the whole stratagem look more like a bear trap as opposed to a hammer and anvil. The void battle at this point became swift and conducive. Horus and the emperor crushed the orcs in a matter of hours. All that remained was the war boss's planet, Goro. It is here we see the emperor and his eldest son engage the orcs of Goro, side by side. The Emperor teleported the two, along with the Custodes and Horus's Justarians, to the Scrap World's surface, where they were met by thousands of orcs. But these were no mere orcs. They were biggins, each a knob in their own right, each the size of a Primarch, if not bigger. These orcs had also been altered by the Mech Boys, each with all sorts of mechanical contraptions attached to them, such as massive claws and rusty iron armor. With a deafening roar, they charged the hundred men of the Imperium, to which the Emperor bellowed back, Arch them! The custodies fired the Guardian Spears into the oncoming mass of green, sending a ripple effect through the orc ranks. Then Horus's Justarians unleashed their bolters, the sound of the large weapon belching out thunder and death. And then the Emperor charged headlong into the throng of Xenos, and it is here where I will let Mr. McNeil use his own words. <clears throat> then the Emperor was amongst them. His sword was a blue steel shimmer, too fast to follow with the naked eye. He moved through the orcs without seeming to move at all, simply existing at one point to kill before appearing elsewhere to reap grinskin lives by the score. Each blow struck with the force of an artillery impact. The shattered bodies flew from his sword as though hurled aside by a bomb blast. Nor was his sword the emperor's only weapon. His outstretched gauntlet blazed with white gold fire, and whatever the flames touched disappeared in explosions of red cinder and ash. He battered bonelessness with bludgeoning blows. He crushed them with invisible coils of force, and he repelled their gunfire with thoughts that turned their rounds to smoke. They came at him in their hundreds, like iron filings to the most powerful magnet, knowing they would never find another foe so deserving of their rage. The emperor killed them all, unstoppable in all of his purity and purpose. <clears throat> I think that paints a pretty good picture of the big E in combat, huh? Horus joined the battle in earnest after this, and soon the little army began to advance against the sea of green monstrosities. Yet the little group did not continue unscathed. At least a dozen custodians were dead, along with the same amount of Justarians. Even Ezekiel Abaddon was dealt a devastating blow. Wounded, but unbowed, the first captain growled and soldiered on. That's when disaster struck. The gravitational fields that kept Goro coherent began to spin out of control. The surface of the world began to shake and crack, and it took all of Horus's strength to hold on. He looked up in dismay and saw the Emperor fall into one of the huge fissures, swallowing him whole. In an act of heroism, Horus dove after his father, following the same path the Emperor took to the center of the scrap world. Down, down, down he went eventually slowing his ascent until he hit the center deck of the world. Gathering his senses, he was dismayed to find the Emperor surrounded by the largest orcs he'd ever seen, and he was worried that even the Emperor could not win this fight alone. With a snarl of defiance, Horus rushed to his father's aid, firing his twin bolters and hacking away at anything green with his sword. 
It was not long before his guns ran dry, and he shattered his sword, yet he pressed on. When he reached the emperor, he gasped in shock, for what did battle with his father was the biggest orc he had ever seen. It was twice the height and width of the emperor, with six clanking mechanized limbs bolted through its flesh and bore horrendous weapons of doom. It took all the emperor's strength and psychic might to keep the monster from killing him. And then the orc smashed the emperor's sword from his hand with a hammer, then latched onto his father's throat with his massive meaty hand, choking the very life from him. Something primal took over Lupercal as he roared his defiance and stormed towards the monster, smashing any orc in his way. His will would not be denied. He would save his father. Using one of the orc's own lightning weapons, he sliced it through the mech warlord's hands that was squeezing the life from his father. Seizing the chance and his fallen sword, the emperor cut the beast from stem to stern, killing the monster. The presence of the mech warlord seemed to be the only thing keeping the planet intact, and with his death, the world began to disintegrate. Taking a breath to steady himself, the emperor used his psychic abilities to teleport the remaining survivors aboard the vengeful spirit. Thus, the Battle of Goro was over. Hail the victory of the Imperium. A, a couple things about this battle that stand out to me, one of which is ironically Horus is the Imperium of man's greatest hero, as well as its greatest villain. If not for Horus, the Emperor would have never survived Goro, and then who knows what the ruinous powers would have in store for the Imperium. Also in this moment we find, along with Horus, that the Emperor was not immortal, and could even be killed by a greenskin. Perhaps this gave Horus the boost of confidence he needed when he decided to betray the Emperor. But who knows? Regardless of these interesting thoughts, what came next after the Battle of Goro was the Ulanor campaign, which we all know how that one ended. Next week, join us as we move on from the Emperor Horus and the Luna Wolves, and shift over to the White Scars, as they battle the Orcs in a campaign known as the Chandox Crusade. This would be one of the final campaigns of the Great Crusade, and would even tip over into the Horus itself. If you enjoyed this box, please like, subscribe, follow, and comment. And as always, <clears throat> Until next time, this is Ekthar, signing off.